Well, if you have your Bibles, then um, go ahead and turn with me to 1 Peter once again, chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Our lesson today is going to be a little bit more lengthy than, than usual from verse 11 to verse 25. And we could, and I actually paused once again early this morning, um, praying and asking the Lord's guidance and direction about whether this entire section is what was his will for us today. Try to validate that as always. And it was, but we could, we could camp for for a long time in any one particular section, but that's not what the Lord wants us to do. I don't know how long uh, I'll speak today, but whatever and however long that it might be, I pray that it would be helpful to you and and honoring to the Lord. So let's just read together First Peter chapter two, beginning in verse eleven and then concluding the chapter. Peter continuing to write, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I have traveled outside of the United States several times, as most all of you know, and I remember my first trip to Africa, the very first one. I'd been to Canada and I believe Mexico before then, but really that first trip overseas, I, re I remember it and I remember the sense of separation I felt from everything that was familiar to me. I can still remember how far from home I felt on that first trip. I, I remember the feeling, and that, 
that feeling was justified. It was, I remember the return trip, it was 48 hours or just under 48 hours from the time I left where I was in Kamasi, Ghana until I touched down in the Springfield Regional Airport. Except for a few hours waiting in airports, the rest of the time was spent in a car traveling to Accra, which is where we flew out of, or an airplane flying from Africa to Europe and then Europe to the United States, and then if memory serves, I think I had two more flights yet before I finally got home. So that feeling of separation and that distance between me and home, I had never felt so acutely as I did on that first trip. Each trip after that that I've taken that feeling has actually decreased. It's, it's been lessened, that feeling of separation and strangeness. I've since been to Romania and Liberia, even a year or so ago, India, but I, I don't remember feeling quite so far from home on any of those subsequent trips as I, I did on that first one. That first trip to Africa introduced me to what it felt like to be a stranger, a foreigner in a strange and distant land. I remember the initial strangeness of preaching through an interpreter. I remember the daily rituals that were carefully followed to remain healthy. The dousing of mosquito repellent so thick that I had to hold my Bible with my handkerchief because otherwise the combination of the heat and the mosquito repellent would glue my hands to the leather, which was uncomfortable as well as damaging to the Bible. The daily dose of the anti-malarial drug, the careful process of ensuring water did not enter your eyes or your mouth as you tried to get cleaned up as best you could each morning, the immunizations against yellow fever and typhoid in the weeks leading up to the trip, all, all of these things reinforced the very strange place that I was in. There was never a moment, again particularly on that first trip, there was never a moment where I was not acutely aware that I was not at home. I share all of this because it, it is this very type of strangeness, foreignness, and separation from home that Peter knew his readers were feeling. We can at least say they should have been feeling that way, and no doubt most of them did feel that way. But the difference between them and my mere trip from the United States to Africa is that Peter's readers were not merely feeling a sense of foreignness from one country to another but they were feeling a sense of strangeness and foreignness from one world to another. They were not at home. And they knew there was nowhere on this earth they could go that could be thought of or described as home. No land that they could travel to. No place where they could move to, to call home. They knew they were strangers and foreigners. And Peter calls them that. He calls them in this letter strangers, exiles, foreigners, and that is exactly what they were. As children of God and believers in Jesus Christ, their citizenship had been changed from anywhere in this world to heaven. Far worse than anything I experienced on that first trip to Africa, these people were acutely aware that they were strangers and pilgrims in this world. Now we know as we begin this morning that that is how it has always been for God's people. And there's never been a time when following God has not called you out of this world and into the, into, into the kingdom of God. That is what happens at salvation. It is a translation from being a citizen of the world to a citizen of heaven. 
This has always been the case, all the way back in Genesis 15, as God is dealing with Abraham. We read in Genesis 15:13, Then said the Lord to Abram, so this is before he even has changed his name, the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. The offspring of Abram are far more than the genealogy that he, that descended from him in the Jewish nation. It is a spiritual ancestry, and Abram's descendants are you and me who know the Lord. And we are told here, or God tells Abraham, Abram at the time, your, your descendants, your, those who follow you, your offspring, and of course he was talking about Israel and specifically talking about the 400 years of bondage in Egypt, but in a type and in a shadow, he is talking about all of Abraham's descendants. They're all going to be sojourners, pilgrims in a land that is not theirs. And that is our lot as followers of God in the world. We're not at home, and there is nowhere here that we can call home. This has always been the case. God has never been dishonest with us about this. He has never tried to hide this from us. He has told us this fact over and over again. So many times that it makes it clear to me that he has to tell us this over and over again because we tend to forget or we tend to not want to consider the truth and the reality of what it means to not be at home. While in Africa, everything was harder. Again, particularly in that first trip when you're not accustomed at all to doing the things, the just the little things every day that you don't have to do when you're at home, when all of the things that you need are within a hand's reach away. God has always told us, though, that we're not citizens of this world any longer when we become followers of His, when we repent for our sin and we believe in Jesus Christ and we place our trust in Him, we become pilgrims in this world. We become strangers and exiles in this world. God has never withheld this and neither should His ministers. Those who proclaim the gospel should always, without any hiding, and we've talked about this even before recently, that we should be a people who are an open book and transparent in what we believe, what we live, what we practice, and that there's no hidden knowledge, there's no hidden back room where the real story is told. But we are open and honest, and one of the things that we ought to be open and honest about is, one, our own understanding of the fact that we are strangers and pilgrims here, and second, that we tell the world that that's what we believe and that's what we know to be true. The misunderstanding of this fact that we are strangers and pilgrims in this life is, I believe, one of the leading causes of spiritual immaturity. To think that we can be at home here and yet striving to reach our ultimate and true home in heaven. While we should be content in our lives, and Paul tells us that, God gives us again and again in his word the, the admonition to be people of great contentment and peace and not covetous or envious or jealous. Yet at the same time, we should always have in our hearts this reality, this as Abraham did in Hebrews when it tells us that he sought a city whose builder and maker was God. Nowhere could he go here to find that place. He looked for a city that was beyond this world. That is where home was. 
And just like I felt as I was walking from place to place in Africa, sensing this great separation, and I just remember thinking, and it's somewhat childish maybe to, to have felt it, but in full transparency and admittance, I remember thinking, I've got a nine-hour flight just to be in Europe. <laughs> I'm a long way from home, and I'd never been that far from home. But I, I couldn't help but think of that first trip as I studied this passage of Scripture and the, and the whole context here of First Peter that comes again and again, Peter just reminding them and stressing, you strangers, you're pilgrims, you're sojourners, you're not citizens here, this is not home. So the persecution that you feel, the struggles that you have, these things are to be expected in a land that is not home. Things are going to be more difficult. And I think again, the lack of an understanding of this in our lives is one of the greatest causes of our spiritual immaturity. And so I would encourage you today as we look at this passage of Scripture and we call out just a few things to remember that in the context of it all, it is that we are not home. Peter has told them of their holy calling. He already gave them that reality. In the first chapter, in the 13th verse, as he as we looked, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he goes on and tells them, you shall be holy. God has called us to a separate life. And it makes sense that our lives are different and unique and separate from the world because we're not citizens of the world. Now that Paul Peter has told them of this general calling, then he's referred to them again and again as strangers and pilgrims. He now gets specific. How does a non-citizen relate to the country that he is in? How do we, as God's people, relate to a world with which we have no continuing city or citizenship? How do we relate to its government? How do we relate to the unbeliever? How do we relate to one another? What is the calling of our lives as exiles? And that is what we would like to speak to you today about, is the calling of an exile. We've spoken about living as an exile. We today want to look at what Peter says very specifically about how to obtain and to reach and to live the exile's calling. How to be, we might say it this way, in the world, but not of the world. That's what Peter takes up here and gives very specific instruction, and I am so thankful that God has done so. He has not given us just overarching ideas and principles, though he has given us those things, and Peter has already done that, but now he dives a layer deeper and he begins to talk to them about what this really means for their lives and that's what I want to talk to you about today. What does this actually mean for our lives to live as an exile? What is it to live the calling of an exile? How do we do it? Well, Peter answers. Verse 11. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, since you are these things, I urge you, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your souls. The exile's calling is not a small, insignificant thing. We are not involved in a few small skirmishes here and there with the flesh. We are at war 
with it. A war calls for complete engagement, complete commitment. You can't partially fight a war. Our own nation has seen the terrible results that come from fighting wars without full-throated support, both politically and among the people, and certainly in the minds and the hearts of those actually fighting the battles. Halfway fighting is a dangerous way to wage a war. In a very, very insignificant comparison, I remember playing football as a boy and as a young man in high school, and I remember being taught, and I discovered that it was true. I remembered being taught that it was the one who lets up and goes halfway that gets hurt far more often than the one who goes full steam and is ready and prepared. I, I saw it happen again and again, someone unwilling to commit to some action, and they were the ones that ended up getting hurt. And in fighting our spiritual war, halfway fighting, halfway committing, not understanding that we are truly at war with the passions of the flesh, to give them only some attention, to give it only some concern, to not be daily striving in prayer against this warfare that goes on between the inner man and the outer man, to halfway fight that battle is to get injured and hurt and lose it. We are at war, and the war here is against our souls. It's not merely against our physical lives. That It's that inward part of us that will exist long after this life is over. These passions of the flesh, as they wage war against us, they are waging war against our, our very souls. The enemy knows, by the way, this. That's where his intention is. The enemy will allow our physical life of prosperity when we enjoy it. The enemy will allow that physical life to prosper, and he'll often use that very physical prosperity as weapons of warfare against your soul. We must be ever vigilant and on watch for the enemy's destructive activity against our souls, even if that tool and weapon that he uses is very comforting to our physical bodies. The enemy will allow the lack of prosperity in our lives, the discontent that can set up in our lives. Because we look out into the world, as the psalmist would say, and the evil man prospers, the wicked just every day seem to enjoy fair uh, lives and they have all that they need and envy and covetousness can set up in our hearts And that is a war that is being waged against our very soul. Whatever the tactic, whatever the strategy that the enemy might use, whatever tool or weapon he might bring to bear, it is a warfare. It is a warfare against our souls. The passions of the flesh we see here very, no very carefully, this, the, the phrasing of what Peter says under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. So what God says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. And then he describes, it's the description of the passions of the flesh which follow. And he says of them, which wage war against your soul. It, it is the passions of the flesh 
that are waging the war. None of us want to be at war if we had a choice to make, because as I said a moment ago, engaging in a warfare calls for complete and total commitment and sacrifice and a and a laser focus on fighting the battles that are in front of us. And at times all we want to do is set our arms down and just let whatever happens happen. As I was reading and studying one of the things that a com- one commentator said, he said that clearly the Christian life should not be described merely as let go and let God. And I understand that that can be misunderstood because there are certainly times in our life that we must let go of our own fear, concerns, our desire to control, and let God take control of our lives. But at the same time, we understand the point being made was this. We're at war, and the passions of the flesh wage the war, whether we want to be engaged with it or not, whether we want to be at war or not. These passions of the flesh are waging war. And what are they? We could list them. We might list a few. Physical pleasure, certainly. This, of course, involves and includes lust. Physical lust. It includes that. It includes, though, many other things. The passions of the flesh to be wealthy. The desire of the flesh to have the world's riches. The passions of the flesh to be lazy. To twiddle away our time. To not engage actively in a life submitted to God in service to Him. To just let life be lived and not be proactive and intentional about how we live it. To be just lazy. Pride is a passion of the flesh. We want to feel good about ourselves and we want to think that we are in ourselves worthy and good and and worth um, the praise of others, gluttony, many other passions of the flesh could be listed, but we want to note first of all here this morning that these passions are waging war against our souls. So let us fight the battle on our knees and with God's word in our minds, in our hearts, ever and always ready. Thank God that we have technology today. There is Never a reason, never has been a reason even before this, but there's never a reason for you to not have God's Word ready immediately at your disposal. Find the verses, and as you study and as you pray daily, and you come across passages of Scripture that you know would be of help to you in a certain situation, save it, put it somewhere where you can easily reference it and call it up again when those moments in life happen. That's when it's time to prepare. It's not in the moment always. It's prior to the battle. Now he goes on and he says, not only are we to be waging this warfare because it's being waged against us, he says that we are to live honorably in the world. Our conduct, he says in verse 12, keep your conduct, your way of living, your walk, your path of life, keep it among the Gentiles honorable. Behaving in an honorable way in the midst of the relentless warfare that wages over our souls is a difficult task, but it is there is a reason that Peter follows up verse 11 with verse 12. He knows that it is very easy when you continually are fighting this warfare to let your guard down and to act in some dishonorable way. 
And so he encourages and exhorts them. The calling of an exile is to wage this war, number one. And secondly, it is to live honorably in the sight of the Gentiles, the world, the unbeliever. Our consistent, honorable life in the face of the difficult times that we face are and is the greatest opportunity, one of the greatest opportunities we have to show the world what we really believe. It's not when things are going easy and well. It's when all of the chips are down and everything we have is on the line and all that we possess and all of the physical passions, the pleasures, the the passions of the flesh are calling for us to do one thing, that we instead act honorably. We tell our boss the truth when the truth is ugly and paints us in a bad light. We tell our parents the truth, our children the truth, our friends the truth. The preacher tells the church the truth. When the passions of the flesh would be, let's just go along and get along and I don't want to fight this battle. And it's very easy when you grow weary in the warfare to let your guard down and to act dishonorably. We've probably all done it. But may we redouble our efforts to always be honorable people in the sight of the world. Not for us, not not so that the world might praise or exalt us, because I, I want to tell you they're not going to. Now, they're going to see your good works, and the, and the prayer is that they might glorify God ultimately. But that is where your good behavior and your honorable life leads, not to you, to God. That's why we live honorable lives, because we want the world to know God. We don't want the world to see us as good, honorable people, and that's it. What a waste. What a waste if that's all that it gets to. We want them to see God. We want them to see Him in us as they look at us and say, there is only one way that man or that woman can be living an honorable life right now. They are powered by something I don't know. They understand something I don't understand. They see something I don't see. There is truth that they are aware of that I don't have and possess. Living an honorable life in the, in the eyes of the world as we wage this warfare against the pleasures and against the passions of the flesh is one of the greatest witnesses that we can have in our life. In the Bible Knowledge Commentary, I came across this. A positive Christian lifestyle is a powerful means of convicting the world of its sin. And when you do that, by the way, most of the time, you will be reviled, you will be insulted, you will be attacked. But deep down, they will know that your behavior, your conduct, your manner of life is an honorable one. I'm so thankful for those around me, many that I've never told them. I'm so thankful for you all. And the honorable way that you have conducted yourselves it is an encouragement to me and I believe a powerful witness to the world he moves on and tells us and this is where we could camp out 
for a long, long time, and I will not. I will only hit some brief highlights. Verses 13 through 16 and 18 through 20, I won't reread them for time's sake. We are called to submit to authority. The Christian is called to obey human government. And perhaps the thought occurs to me now at some point in the future we take a Thursday or two and study this out a little more directly. Because there is simply no way that I can treat it justly here other than to say a few things that are very plainly on the surface. And that is one. We are called to obey human government. Romans 13 tells us that human government is ordained by God. Thirteen Romans 13, 1 and 2, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. We'll just read verse 1. Human government is ordained by God. We read that in Romans. We read it in Daniel. We read it in various other places. Society without authority, which is what government is, is chaos. Christians in the first century and since have a, a label about them that in the eyes of the Gentiles, the eyes of the world, the unbeliever, is very odd. They claim openly, unapologetically, and without any trickery, they claim that they are not citizens of any nation in this world, but they obey the laws of the land. They are obedient to the authorities that they know God has placed over them. And the irony is that the enemy of our souls would stir up the unbeliever towards the Christian and say that they are revolutionist and they will misapply and misconstrue what the Christian says that my home is not here, my king is not here. And they will say, see, they are trying to usurp the power of the government. The New Testament, and this is likely again cause for much more study, I, I do not see in the New Testament any advocation for any particular form of government in the first century, it was Nero, the Caesar, and Christians were accused of being revolutionists. But Peter tells them to live honorably and to obey these authorities. Disobedience to reasonable laws of man, and I knew I threw that word reasonable in, which is where the trick is, but disobedience to the government can hinder our Christian witness when we are seen as rebellious for reasons other than our convictions as Christians. Yet we know we must disobey the government when, when their laws are at odds with God's laws. But how do we know where that line is and when it is crossed? I will not pretend to have all of the answers to that question, but I want to give you a couple of thoughts and a twofold test. And the test, first of all, is not, do I like my government? It's not the test. The test is, are the laws contrary to God's laws? If they are not, then I must obey according to the scripture. And then secondly, is this this government, the one God has ordained, as best as I can tell and as best as I can know, because it is not merely about rejecting one 
It is more about accepting and obeying and following another. So the other must always be defined first and understood to be God's will. And at that point, ours as Christians is to obey. We obey God when we obey the government, according to verse 13. We, though, though we obey, we as Christians, according to verse 16, are free. Live as people who are free. And we are, regardless of what is happening in the world around us, we are free. We're free from every nation on this earth because our citizenship is not here. It's in heaven. Verses 18 through 20 takes it another layer deeper, not just the government in general, but those in authority over us directly, our bosses, our teachers, our parents. We are to obey the good ones and the bad ones. The masters that are good and gentle, and those who are unjust. An unjust master does not give you or me license to disobedience. An unjust master does not give us license, not on, not on that face itself, not on that alone. In fact, Peter, he expounds on that point and tells them there's really no, there's no creditness, there's no credit or worthiness to obeying a gentle master and disobeying the unjust. And we could again look at that even deeper, but we want to move on. Verse 17, just this extra piece of advice and living the calling of an exile is to honor everyone, honor all. It's been said that the test of a person's kindness and genuineness of character is how he treats those who can't do anything for him. The person who treats the, the individual who is at a perceived place of less authority treats them just as kindly, just as honorably as he treats the one who is his boss. There isn't a single person on this planet we are to treat dishonorably, not one. Honor all. Honor every one. And love God's people. One of the chief joys of the Christian life that God has given us is fellowship and love between others, other believers in the church. Now listen, when we don't want to be with fellow believers, when we don't want to be with our church, with those that we claim and say we love, when we don't have that in our heart at all times to want to be together and then to ensure that we do all that we can to make sure that we are with them and caring for them and loving them and exhorting them, chastising them when it's necessary, encouraging them when that's needed, uh, giving praise when praiseworthiness is due to their good behavior. When we don't have that in our heart and our life, something is very wrong. Something's wrong. And it's time to be on our knees in prayer to find out what's going on. And then he says to fear God. Fear here is speaking of reverence. We know the word fear can have a number of connotations. Here it, it primarily means to reverence. 
while we honor all. And while we love one another, the love the brethren, love the brotherhood, we do not reverence any of them. Reverence is reserved for God alone. Don't confuse reverence for love. Don't confuse reverence for honor. You should not reverence anyone but God. I've known some people who it might be said that they there is a great love for this for this person to this this person for their spouse. But I've wondered at times whether it stepped across the line of love and moved into reverence. Now, we'll get into this in Corinthians, our study there on our Bible studies. We, we are called to give reverence to authority, but that reverence ultimately ends in God. When we disobey those in authority in our lives, we are not reverencing God. We're to reverence Him and Him alone. Then finally, verses 21 through 25. Have you ever been given a task to do and you didn't know how to do it and you hadn't even ever seen or heard of anyone else having done it? At work, one of the things I've discovered over the years is that when I engage with a problem, when a problem or an issue manifests itself, one of the first things I think of is, it is incredibly unlikely that I'm the first person that has ever tried to solve this problem. And one of the first things I'll do is go find out how other people have solved the problem. But when there is a situation where no one else has, and there's been a few of those at work, and in your life, no doubt, you've had times where there's been a problem and you've never seen anybody navigate those waters before. You've never under, you've never seen it for yourself. You've never heard of anybody. Well, can you imagine being given this calling of an exile, what Peter has just laid out for us to do, without an example to follow? It's hard enough with it, yet we do have an example. Verses 21 through 25 we are given the reminder that Christ is the pattern in all of this. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, and Peter says, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. This word example in the Greek, it's the only time it appears, one time. And it refers, and you've probably done this as a child, all of us probably did this, it refers to placing a blank sheet of paper on top of another and tracing a pattern. That's literally what the word means, is to trace the pattern. It is to be as exact by tracing something that has already been made. Scripture draws for us the pattern of Christ. We are to place our lives over the scripture and trace the example of Christ. And he gives us many of them. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So as we trace the pattern of Christ in our life, deceit ought not be in our mouth. When he was reviled, 
He did not revile in return. So when we are reviled and we are tracing the pattern of Christ in our lives, we then too don't revile. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We are called to do nothing that Christ himself has not already done and shown us how to do. Trace the pattern of Christ in your life. You all know that I've taken a liking to a man named Linsky in some of his commentaries. Read just about all of his commentary on John. Just a tremendous book. I encourage you to get it if you can. But on this verse, he says this. This is one who dwells beside, when he speaks of being a sojourner. Sorry, I didn't introduce that right. Linsky writes of being a sojourner, an exile. He writes, the and he says the following. A sojourner is one who dwells beside the native citizens, who is allowed to do so under restricted rights, which are less than those granted the citizens. I'm going to read that again. An exile, a foreigner, is one who dwells beside the native citizens, who is allowed to do so under restricted rights, which are less than those granted the citizens. We live alongside the citizens of this world. In one sense, then, we have less rights to this world than they do. Yet in another sense, we are the ones who are free. They are slaves in bondage to the pleasures and the passions of the flesh, to the kingdom of this world. And as citizens of this world, they have a better call or a better, uh, uh, they are allowed and they can partake and do things that we as foreigners should not, really. As we trace Christ's pattern, as we live as an exile and fulfill the exile's calling, we need to remember always the reality of our position in the world. We live in the world, but not of it. And I want to close with this, just simply the final verse of our reading today, verse 25, which gives us encouragement and hope and joy and anticipation and it takes all of the warfare, all of the struggle, all of the times when we have to swallow the words that are lying so quickly on our tongue to revile when we are treated poorly, to fight back when we are treated unjustly, when we have to do call to bear all of the spiritual weapons that we possibly have, may we remember this one, this reality, this truth. For you were straying like sheep. Do you remember when you were straying like a sheep, lost, no shepherd, no leader, no guide, no certainty, no comfort, no protection? Peter reminds these exiles, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. As we live the calling of an exile, may that always be near our hearts. We've returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. 
I pray that something's been said this morning that will be of help to you in your walk with the Lord. If you don't know the Lord, I pray that the Spirit of God is dealing with your heart, that you would seek him until you find him, and you can find him. Paul told the Athenians he's not far from any one of us if we would seek him. He's near. He'll save you. He wants to. It's why he sent his son. It's why I'm looking down on a Bible that I hold so dear in my life. From Genesis to Revelation, it all tells us of God's will to save lost humanity. He wants to save you. He will save you. I encourage you and exhort you and beg you and plead with you to seek him until you find him. For those of us that do know him, may these things we've read today that Peter wrote to these scattered, dispersed Christians in the first century that rings so very true to us 2,000 years later. May they help us continue to pick up our cross and follow our Savior wherever he might lead us and guide us. Thank you for listening this morning and pray God's blessing on each of you.